Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right, let's get started here. As a new believer, oh, I probably was 20 years old at the time and only known the Lord for six months after that dramatic uh, conversion, stepping out of a nightclub and becoming a born-again Christian. And I was all excited to share my newfound faith. And so our youth group had uh, a missions trip to Uh, Mexico, and I'll never forget it. Uh, It's a very common destination for youth groups in California to go down on uh, Christmas break and share the gospel and be a blessing to orphanages down there. We went to Ensenada. I remember getting so excited. I memorized John 3.16 in Spanish, something I can still do to this day. Uh, Very, very excited And so we gathered together at Pastor Steve's house. Pastor Steve and I have been friends for 40 years now. Incredible. And so we needed some instruction and a time of prayer to prepare for our missions trip. And of course, Pastor Steve was going to instruct us on uh, what we'll be saying and what we'll be doing. We would be ministering to the kids, uh, doing uh, vacation Bible school. Uh, He also had a word about culture about food, about the water, all of that stuff, about how much money we needed uh, to cover the cost, all of these things. And so Christmas break came, finally, and there we were on our way to Mexico. And I'll tell you what, it was a a life-changing experience for a brand-new baby Christian. And I remember saying, I want to be a missionary someday. And it really shaped the direction of our lives. And God was so gracious to allow us to uh, spend four years abroad in many, many missions missions trips. And so uh, I praise the Lord for that opportunity. And now here in Matthew 10, there's going to be a dozen young adults who are preparing for their very first missions trip. And uh, some of them not much older than I was. In fact, scholars who have done the math say that the disciples were anywhere from 15 to about 26 years old. Their average age around 22, uh, 21 years old. And so young uh, men and also young in their faith. They'd been around Jesus for about a year and a half at this point in Matthew chapter 10. And now they're gathering in their pastor's home, really. He's the good shepherd who's pastoring them. Or we could call him their master's home for a time of instruction and prayer. And I'm sure there's a mix of excitement and joy and apprehension as they get ready to go out in the name of Jesus to do Jesus' work and to share the gospel. And so what It's interesting here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 16, is is that they're going to talk about issues and concerns that we still talk about 2,000 years later. And so there are going to be four important things that Jesus wants them to know, and they are valuable insights for us as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read through through the passage together, then we'll come through and walk through verse by verse as is our custom. So are you ready? You've got your Bibles out? You know? Okay, good. Starting at verse 5 down to verse 16, here we go. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter the town of Samaritans, of the Samaritans. I should say, it should say yet, because he will tell them to go there. Uh, But right now, they're going to concentrate on Israel. 
So verse 6, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, this is what you say, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. And most of the other parallel passages have the repent. Do a, have a change of heart because the kingdom is drawing near to you. Um, verse 9. Uh, or, oh no, I didn't finish that verse. Freely you have received, freely give. Verse 9. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts or in your wallets. Verse 10, take no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at their house until you leave for the next place. Verse 12, as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave that home or town. Verse 15, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Last verse, 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. <laughs> Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Amen, amen. So you know what about this passage? There are a lot of little things that a lot of Christians wonder about. What did that really mean? And so uh, we are going to take a look at what these verses really mean uh, this morning as we start off here with uh, uh, verses 5 and 6 here. Uh, let me tell you how we're going to divide it up as we usually do. Really, number one will be uh, where to go and where not to go, right? Number two is what to say and do. Number three is what to bring as far as money and possessions. And number four, how to behave, especially when you don't uh, get a warm welcome, when the welcome that you do receive uh, really is hostile. How should you respond to that? So some really good talking points this morning, really uh, where to go, what to say, what to bring, and how to behave. There it is. And now we can get back to those verses 5 and 6. These 12, Jesus sends out with the following instruction. Don't go outside of Israel's borders. Don't go to the towns of Samaria who were half Jews and half Gentiles and really did have their own way of religion and their own uh, differences there. Don't go there. Just concentrate on the lost sheep of Israel. Stay in the borders of the nation. And so, uh, so Jesus has some strong opinions, right? <laughs> because it's his mission, right? And so he's saying, this is where I want you to go, and this is where I, I don't want you to go yet, right? Now, here, uh, we're going to see in several places in the Gospels, uh, different missionary trips, and he sends them out in Matthew uh, 10 here, and in Luke chapter 9 and Mark chapter 6. So different teams that are sent out at different times have different instructions. And so do not read the, these lists, especially this first trip, as a one-size-fits-all. Because before the cross, he sends them with different instructions. After the cross, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, he kicks open the doors. He says, now go out to all the world and preach the gospel. And, and, and there are a lot of differences after the cross. And so I think some people make the mistake is that they just read, this is our uh, calling. And uh, uh, it, in a general way it is, but there are some differences to note and we're going to do that. So your verse starts out, <clears throat> excuse me, with the 12. And we met them all one by one last week. Really, there are 11 real apostles and one faker who we will see uh, is the betrayer. And so the first takeaway is he takes these 12 ordinary guys, as we saw last week, not much to write home about, 
They were uneducated, not handsome and winsome, as uh, commentators often point out. Young in their faith, young in their age. You don't, you don't need a whole lot of anything to be used by God. You just need a call. You need a, a willing spirit, an open heart, hands to do the work of the ministry. That's really all. And these guys, these 12 in your verse that he sends out to represent God, that's incredible. Nobody would have voted for them to most likely to have their names inscribed on the foundation stones of the celestial city, which we call heaven. Oh, they wouldn't have voted for them to appear. (laughs) As you walk through the gates, you're going to see these guys' names there. That's pretty amazing what God can do with ordinary people. And these 12 are ordinary indeed. And so one writer said the Christian mission really is one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. And in this case, he calls himself the bread of heaven or the bread of life. He says, if you eat of this bread, you will never die. And so they take that message really out into the world and he instructs them. The word there in your text there in verse uh, five of instructions has a military nuance to it. In other words, it's more like a command and which makes sense, right? He's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the universe. He has a way he wants his mission to go. And so he calls the shots, he commands how we live, how we speak, and here, how we do his work. And what's amazing and sad to me is that throughout the ages and now in these contemporary times, um, we have changed the gospel. We've told him, uh, we'll tell you what we're going to say. In fact, the new contemporary version of the gospel, it's called a deconstruction of faith. If you deconstruct the faith, you don't have the faith anymore. You have something else. And if it's something other than the gospel and only the gospel saves, then what it's become is useless, right? And so, yeah, the new gospel, they wouldn't even send anybody out. They would tell them, oh, go out and tell everybody, it's cool, God just loves you the way you are. No need to change. No need of repentance. But see, the message he sends them with is repent. Repent isn't mentioned in your verse, but in every other one. So it's presupposed. Repent. Turn around. God is near. You have to have a change of heart or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And so, yeah, I mean, we say what he wants us to say. As unpopular and offensive as that can be. But he's putting the words in their mouth. He's telling them where to go, where not to go in all of this. And so, yeah, Frank Sinatra's way, when he sang my way, it's a catchy tune maybe, but it is definitely a death blow to any attempt to please God. So right out from the jump here, right in the beginning, he says there's a no-fly zone for now. I want you to concentrate on, and check this out, the lost sheep of Israel. There is false teachers who say that the Jews don't even need to be evangelized. They don't need to get saved. And clearly their Messiah says they are wandering sheep, as Isaiah put it. We, like sheep, have gone astray. And he's speaking, we Israelites. He's a Hebrew prophet. We, I mean, it applies to all humanity, but we Jews Uh, We have gone astray like sheep. Each have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so he says, I want you to go after my lost sheep. Avoid the Gentiles for now. He's not forbidding that so much as focusing on on what is a function. Uh, First to the Jews because it completes the process. Uh, 300 prophecies about Christ coming uh, and the people with the greatest advantages, with the greatest knowledge, what a crazy paradox, are the ones who refuse him. He comes to his own. John chapter 1 verse 10. He came to his own 
his own people. He's a Jewish Messiah coming from Jewish prophecies in a Jewish book and a Jewish genealogy fulfilling hundreds and hundreds of pictures and types and his own receive him not but to all who do receive him to them he gives the power to become children of God and so the sheep are wandering because they're spiritually blind they have like a veil over their hearts Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 it's a willful unbelief he says but when somebody turns to the Lord the veil is lifted and so Yes, indeed. So by the way, my new favorite pastime, and you've got time on your hands, right? I'm on my phone and I go to One for Israel, their YouTube channel. And there's a section on testimonies of Jewish people who come to know their Messiah. And they're about eight, ten minutes long. They're well done. Uh, they're, they're exciting. They're moving. Uh, I can just watch them for hours. And they all kind of have these uh, formerly lost sheep of Israel who somebody came to with the gospel and they believe. But they all have kind of a common story, no matter how many you watch. There's this strong sense of Jewish identity where they grow up and Jesus is a bad word. He's just, he's, he, they think of him as Catholic. And they think of the New Testament as a Gentile book. And they're always so shocked when they open up and read Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the genealogy of Christ, who is a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the son of David. They're just blown away. And so, yeah, they didn't connect in their religion. A common thread here with the sheep who were lost in Israel. They have this religion. They all talk about liking the traditions and the holidays. But there's a missing piece for them. There's a missing power that everybody's in synagogue always talking about the God in the past. What he did not what he's doing in their hearts and lives. And where are the sacrifices? If Jews' foundation is the sacrifice of atoning for sin, where is it? You know, so all of these questions leave them open. And so, you know, it's just a place. Let let me sum it up with this about Jews who need their Messiah, Jesus. Uh, A Christian was sharing the gospel with a Jewish man. And he said, listen, I've got a book. I want to read a couple lines from it. And you tell me, take a guess what book that is. And so he he started reading about a ruler born in Bethlehem. And then he started reading about a miracle worker who would open blind eyes and and, uh, raise the lame and and the deaf and all of that, heal the deaf, I should say, and, and then suffer and die for the sins of the nation and for the sins of the world. And he would ride into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey on something called Palm Sunday. And he goes, oh, well, that's obvious. That's the New Testament. And he's, he opens the book. It's his Hebrew Bible he's reading from. And the guy says in the testimony, he goes, what is Jesus doing in my book? Well, what Jesus is doing in the Jewish book for the lost sheep, the wandering sheep of Israel is reaching out to save. He came to seek and save his own. And the reason he does it first is just functionality. It's, it's, it's as if if you had... Uh, some new invention. You le- you're from, um, where is it? Michigan, let's say. Uh, would you, if, let me get this right. If you've got a new invention for some car, right? And you're from Michigan, wouldn't you go to De- Detroit there? That was a lot of work for a line that just didn't work for me. How about this one? If you're from Los Angeles, and you've got something that would be helpful to the film industry, wouldn't you go to Hollywood first? Well, if you're from Nazareth and you just happen to be the Jewish Messiah, wouldn't you go to Israel, right? This is the reason the gospel comes to the Jew first. Duh, right? And then after his death and resurrection, after they've been offered 
uh, their Messiah and the missing piece of their puzzle, then he kicks the door open to the entire world, go into all the earth and share the good news, make disciples of all nations. And by the way, as I've often said of my people, and they are. I mean, when I'm on that channel, I just see my dad, my relatives' faces, uh, sometimes my face there. Uh, and so they are going to get saved. Romans 11:25, right at the end, Armageddon, in the days of Armageddon, the heat gets turned up and their eyes look up and they call out on Yeshua, the Jewish name for Jesus. And so we look forward to that. Amen. So, yes, that's where to go. And now, what are you going to be saying? All right. And so, go and preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick and raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Boy, that's amazing. Here's what you're going to say. and Here's what you're going to do. I mean, I, I mean, if you're telling somebody they're going to lay their hands on a dead body and they're going to come to life, that's pretty amazing. So, as far as what to say, it's kind of a summary statement, and I've kind of touched upon it a little bit already, but the kingdom of heaven is near. That is going to encompass really everything Jesus has already been teaching, everything in the Sermon on the Mount. And so you only get a sentence here, but they did more than a sentence when they went into town. They gave his claims Come meet a man, he's coming behind us, we go before him, and who claims to be God in a human body who has the authority to forgive all of your sins. And that is in Matthew chapter 9. And this is a Jesus we are proclaiming, the kingdom of God and of heaven is drawing near to you, and this king is proclaiming things like, on the light of the world. If any man believes in me, he shall never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so another claim. Jesus is coming. He's near. He has living water that he'll give you. John chapter 4. If you drink of that water, you'll never be thirsty. If you eat of the bread he gives, you'll never die, never be hungry. He will satisfy all your longings. And then the big ticket item, of course, is John 11 and verse 25. It's a stunner. He says, if you believe in me, anyone who believes in me, just trust in me. Even if you die, yet shall you live. Now, that's what they went preaching, proclaiming the king of the kingdom that's coming near them. And he was near. He was standing in their towns. Now, the second verse there. Uh, shows you the evidence and the proof that Jesus delegated to them the power to do what only God could do to verify those claims. So they come into town with this huge claim that if you believe in Jesus as your Jewish Messiah, you will never die. Well, of course, now show us a dead body. They raise the dead up. We don't have a record of the, the disciples doing that on their own. We do see it, though, uh, from the Apostle Paul and Peter in the book of Acts. But there'll be plenty of stories by the campfires in heaven of all these things that we know nothing about. But they had the power to do that, of course. If, if they said, Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world, they're able to heal the blind, to show, look, this guy's in dark. He is the light of the world. The, the claim is true and can be trusted. Look at this. And that's why those miraculous uh, powers were given to them as Jesus was introduced as the Messiah who was called Wonderful Counselor Almighty God in their scriptures. And so he would have had to be able to do what only God could do. In fact, he said to his opponents in John chapter 10, look, if I can't do what only God can do, you're off the hook. You don't have to believe. But if I can do what only God can do, then my claims are accurate and you need to trust so that you can be saved. This is the heart of our God. So uh, C.S. Lewis, that 
British brainiac, as I like to call him, just a prolific writer, just a genius theologian type. He wrote this about Jesus' claims. A man who was merely a man and said the kinds of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. <laughs> I love that. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You've got to make a choice. And that choice is famously called the trilemma. He is either a liar, lunatic, or lord. And so to help people choose because God, our Savior, wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. And God is not willing that anybody perish, but that all are saved. He wants to make it easy. He's reasonable. So he knows any megalomaniac can come into town and say, I'm the light of the world. Or, or if you believe in me, you'll never die. So he says, now watch this. Lazarus, come forth. I've been dead four days. And he comes forth to show the people, look, I don't expect blind faith. Don't have faith is never blind. There's plenty of things, even today in this day and age, creation being one of them. And so he loans them the power and they heal the sick. No case too difficult. They raise the dead as we've been talking about. Cleansing lepers, one of my favorite, because they're just, they're, their skin, they're just rotting. And, and the, their nose is collapsed and uh, it's terrible. And they're, uh, they're excommunicated from life. And he's able to, and he lends the power to these guys. Now, of course, they're going to come back, and, and Luke tells us of them coming back with a reaction that's kind of proud. And of course, you know, can you imagine? And so uh, they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit when we tell them to. And he said, listen, yeah, that's cool. He said, you know what you should really be joyful about is that your, your names are written in heaven. The big deal is not what God can do through you and while the amazing drama of what you can do for God, it's that God had mercy on your soul and you're not going to perish, but you are going to heaven. Let that humble you, uh, Peter, James, and John. And so, uh, yes, simply believe in him. Here's the point of what you just read and what we went through. Jesus is who he claims to be. That's the point. That's the point of the power. And then, as I've been saying to you many times, that the greater miracles that he said we would do is raising somebody, not from the physical death, wherein they have to die again. How lame is that, right? But we speak the gospel that raises somebody eternally to a life that can never die. Open blind eyes that don't have to shut again in death. The eyes that we open by preaching the gospel, uh, they see the truth and they inherit eternal life. And so greater works shall you do indeed. And that's what he sends us to do. And so exciting. Now, Who's going to pick up the tab for all of this is the next talking point. Verses 8, B and following. He says, freely you have received, freely give. Verse 9, do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Different denominations of coins and money there. Take no big suitcases for the journey. You don't need a bunch of extra stuff because trust in the providence of God. What you need is going to be supplied for you, for the worker is worthy of his keep. So let's talk about these. So yeah, where to go, where not to go, what to say and what to do, and now what to bring to support yourself. Really, it's a lesson, as I alluded to, to how to trust God, to start to believe in providence, that when you need something and you're serving him, God's aware of it, and he will bring that, uh, he will provide that need for you. So uh, first, the gospel goes out. Here's the lesson free of charge. He wants them to understand money has nothing to do with this. So he says, freely you have received, now freely give. 
In other words, Jesus didn't charge the disciples for anything, and he wants them to do the same, to not charge their disciples who they're reaching, right? You know my joke that I always say, and I throw that in for free. The reason why it might be funny is because everything's free. The gospel is free. And so that's the point, right? That's why people laugh. Uh, Ministers are asked sometimes a very cringeworthy question. How much do you charge for a funeral? How much do you charge for a wedding? How much do you charge for premarital counseling? We don't. And if some guy answers you with a number, you should check out a different pastor. You know, it's... It's okay to thank somebody, and that's between those who receive a blessing or some, uh, the fruit of somebody's efforts. That's between them and God. The gospel is to be free, and that's what preaching and teaching is all about. It's to be freely given. He says, you guys weren't charged. How could you think about charging others? And so... To answer the question that one of them might have had is, how are we going to afford this? Uh, where do you guys have, Jesus, are you going to give us money for the food or lodging? And he says, he answers this way, leave your cash and your cards at home. You won't need your luggage with all your stuff in it, with your extra you know, clothes and your extra shoes and your walking sticks and all of that. Gold, silver, and copper, as I said, uh, different values of coins in that day. He's saying, listen, you're doing something worthy of your keep. Therefore, God will take care of you through the hospitality of those who are receiving the fruit of your labors, the blessings that come from your hard work. There will be hospitality guided by the providence of God. And so um, he's saying, let's focus on what's important. It's the message, not money. It's the mission. It's souls, not stuff. And so this simple attitude is what separates real pastors from fake ones. Really? I mean, honestly, uh, God's men will never preach for a paycheck. The phonies are in it for the money. And it's fairly obvious. I went to Bible college with a friend and this friend was applying in his senior year for a position as a youth pastor at a mega church in the area near the Bible college. And he was so excited. And he met in a boardroom with a whole bunch of people asking him all kinds of questions. And then they asked him, finally, what's your bottom dollar? What's your budget? You have a family. Do you got a number? Just give us a ballpark of what you think you require. And he said, require? He goes, I would pay you to work at a church like this, to sit under that pastor and learn and grow. God's always taking care of me. I'm not worried about the money, you know? And they hired him, and they paid him well. You see, just that's the way we've got to be about the gospel. To be any other way is to bring an offense to this glorious gospel. And so Jesus is saying, fellas, listen, chin up, shoulders back. You are doing a worthy job. It's a job. And that as people are commanded by the Lord to give to the work of the gospel, to give to God, God supplies what ministers need. In other words, as one writer put it, churches don't pay pastors. God's people give to the work of the Lord, and the Lord provides for those who work for him. It's appointed by God that those who preach the gospel make their living by the gospel, but they don't require it. They don't demand it, but that's how it will work as God is doing his work among his people. And really, so the takeaway from these couple verses is this, really, that he says, listen, guys, (laughs) when he says the worker is worthy He's saying, really, you're doing an essential work. 
he says the gospel is opening blind eyes and, and raising people from the dead and uh, counseling them and nourishing them in the word of God, teaching people to live with wisdom. He calls out worthy or essential. You know, essential. More essential than ice cream. More essential than tacos and hamburgers. More essential is a Home Depot or the house of the Lord. Which is essential? I don't know. I'll leave that to you guys, but I digress. Don't get me started. You already did it. I can tell you which one of you did it, too, later. <laughs> All right, moving on. I hear the roar of laughter from your living rooms there. Uh, let's finish up 11 through 16. So paraphrasing along, whatever town, verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, search for a worthy person. I'll explain that one. Stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome or listen to your words, shake the dust off from your feet. I'll explain that. Verse 15, I'll tell you the, I tell you the truth. Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better on that last day than anybody who's lived around my town and seen me and still rejected me. It won't go well for them at all. And so I'm sending you out in a hostile environment. Don't become like them. You're sheep. They're wolves. And uh, let me tell you how I want you to be. Smart and shrewd but harmless as a dove. Let's talk about these things, okay? So how to behave, especially when you're not welcome, but also when you're welcome. So he's got some protocols here for us. Really, he says, search for some worthy person. Now, this is interesting because nobody's worthy, and this flies in the face. If you're taking worthy to mean noble or morally upstanding citizen, uh, it flies in the face of the entire teaching of the gospel, that the, the bottom rungers, the, the ones who are in need, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, right? They were listening. And so, listen, one writer put it this way. In this case, the word Jesus uses to describe those who respond to the gospel is very enlightening. Whoever hears the word and responds becomes worthy in the eyes of heaven, worthy to enter heaven, worthy to walk with God, worthy to wear white robes, worthy of being a child of God just by believing. There in Galilee were people of little worth in the eyes of the world, but once they believed, they were worthy in the eyes of the Son of God. That is so awesome. So he says, listen, you'll know who heaven considers worthy by those who submit and surrender their lives and believe in Christ. They become worthy. So when, when you find somebody like that, go into their house and stay put until it's time to leave. He doesn't want Peter, James, and John to be saying, where are you staying? You've got a pool are you kidding me? You know, the guy I'm staying with, he's gruff. He wants to talk until 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, oh, you want to know about my situation? I got kids climbing all over the furniture, climbing all over me. No, you won't be shopping around. If somebody's worthy, they open their hearts to the gospel, become worthy in the eyes of heaven, stay put there. And deal with the little idiosyncrasies there. And, and don't be jumping around looking in what's better for you kind of thing. And so that's verse 11. Now, the following verses all have something that Christian, Christians usually scratch their head about. And I'm delighted to be able to maybe bring a little clarity to you. Uh, verse 13, he says, in a home that receives you, that is that becomes believing, uh, their, God's peace will rest on it. Well, of course. Their hearts are turning to God. They're, they're reconciled to him. The Holy Spirit is, is at work. And of course, God's peace rests upon them. And then he says, if they are not worthy of the blessings of heaven and they shut the door, their peace doesn't 
rest on that home. The, God's peace won't rest on their home or their lives, but you take back your peace. In other words, it's not, your peace should never leave you depending on whether they reject or accept. So if they shut the door in your face, your peace goes back to you. You don't lose your peace because they're saying, hey, I don't want your message, get off my property. You still have your peace. The peace just stays put in your heart. They forfeit it through the closed door, but your peace never leaves. And a lot of people, unfortunately, somebody refuses the gospel, they take it personally and they don't have peace, they're upset. They say, don't, don't do that. If they reject your message, it's because they reject me. If they hate you, keep in mind, they hated me first. So keep your peace. It's not about you, he says. And then he says, um, so let your peace return to you because it should have never left. And then he says in verse 14, shake off that dust if they shut the door. Now this is interesting it has, uh, it's an idiom that has a couple nuances to it. Number one is just wash your hands of it. You're free of accountability. You've done your part. Uh, no need to uh, entangle yourself in something that's hostile and, hostile and they're not open, right? And so the circuit meaning is would be only known to the Jews in the story. So the pious Pharisees, is when they went into Gentile territory outside of Israel, when they'd come back through the border, they'd take off their sandals and make a big showy clacking clack, and everybody knows, oh, they're coming home from Gentile territory. And they're getting rid of even the dust that would cling to them, showing I'm so holy and so right with God uh, that even the corrupt dust from a Gentile territory I want nothing to do with. So when Jesus tells them to do that to a, gen, to a Jewish family, the Jews are like, they get the message. Jesus is saying to reject your Jewish Messiah is to put you outside the privilege of the people of God. And now you are just like a commoner, which is what Gentile means, somebody outside the covenant of God. No special privilege no nearness to God. You're just like the rest of the Gentiles because you're rejecting the Jewish answer to atonement for our sins. And so he goes out with a bang and so do we with the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says in verse 15 there, it will be more tolerable on judgment day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these villages who do the rejecting. Now, a couple important things here. So Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, is the byword in the Bible for complete destruction, utter uh, horrendous judgment of God on a terribly wicked and corrupt uh, two cities there. And so uh, what he's saying there is that they suffered judgment, right? 2,000 years earlier. That's how long it had been. And yet there was another worse judgment to come, the spiritual one, when the wicked dead are resurrected at the end of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20 and stand before the great white throne to give an account of their lives. He says, those who line up from Sodom will, do, will have a lighter sentence than those who are in the line from Capernaum who were alive at AD 30 to 33 who lived in the town where the Son of God was, because to whom much is given, much is required. To have God in a body, which he claims to be, Colossians 2.9 says that he's the fullness of God in human flesh and blood. To have him shopping in your stores and living down the lane and doing miracles and raising the dead and walking on water in your own town and hearing the voice, unfiltered deity speaking, the audible voice of the one who spoke and the universe was created. Oh, that's a high privilege, but it comes with a cost. And that cost is to know 
better. And reject is a serious offense before the living God. I was teaching at that vocational college in the East Bay uh, years ago, and uh, somebody asked me a question, and the whole class was involved. And I had the the honor of being used by God to say something, and a few of them, and the whole class kind of responded like, oh, now we get it. And I said, oh, now you're all accountable. I said, because you weren't accountable 10 minutes ago for that, but now you know, and you just said you know. And so now God is holding you accountable. And as I'm saying that, they all go, it was funny, but sad. They all went like this, ah, <laughs> Like, what? Yeah, of course. I, and I told them. I said, that's funny. It makes me laugh now. Ha ha. But it won't stand up in the courts of heaven. He knows better. And you guys know. You guys knew anyway before I started talking. All you have to do is look at the sun, moon, and stars. Look at how uh, the half cell of your dad and, the, and a half cell of your mom you were one cell for 90 minutes. 90 minutes, this human body is made up of 100 trillion cells. Was one cell for an hour and a half? How did this happen? Everybody knows how that happened. Happened because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we know that full well, as the psalmist says. And so... Finally, he says, watch your attitudes there. Verse 16, he says, guard your hearts. Don't expect a standing ovation when you come out and say that you've accepted the Lord. Wait till you watch those YouTube videos. Oh, they have to go back to the family. The family's like, you should, you should have just died. You should have stayed a drug addict. It would have been better for you to be a drug addict. You know, and so there are wolves out there, and wolves are ferocious. And he's saying, I'm sending you out, defenseless as you are, uh, among uh, hostile wolves. And so wolves are hungry. They are known to viciously attack. Uh, they have a different nature than ours. And so he, he says, here's the strategy. Be forewarned, so you're, you'll be forearmed. And be shrewd about this. If you already know... There's sin working, there's evil working, uh, there's hostility. Be shrewd. Wise as a serpent means shrewd or street smart or savvy, not gullible, uh, not naive, without being cynical, right? He wants that balance, he says there, that you should love your enemies. But you, you know, you're tempted when we're aggressed, we're tempted, we're tempted to aggress back, aren't we? He says, I want you to remain uh, as harmless as a dove. I mean, doves are not birds of prey, but check this out. I mean, he's not saying, I want you to be uh, powerless and weak. The dove is what the, the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. God made the worlds by the Spirit, not by power or by might, but by my Spirit. And the logo he chose to represent himself is the dove. And he says, my people are of the dove. We're not of the turkey vultures. We're not of the hawk that comes in aggressive like that, tearing everybody up. But you'll be tempted to, he says, keep your heart sweet. Keep your words harmless soft. And of course, there's power in that. The proverb says, a gentle answer can break a bone. A soft answer puts out the anger, the fire of anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, right? Kind deeds done when we're aggressed by savage wolves, when you, when you put out some water for it, feed it something, Burning coals are heaped, burning conviction that they need the Lord, that they're sinning, that they aren't doing the right thing. There's power. There's power in being a sheep, gentle and meek and kind like Jesus. Power in being a harmless dove. 
Don't be thinking a fatalistic way of, oh, yeah, yeah, laying down your life and all of that. Yes, but there's a power. There's a power in our weakness. His power is made perfect. So don't try to muscle up and, uh, you know, be vengeful with the wolves, right? Because we live in Wolfville, but we have to maintain who we really are. So in closing... God sends us out today in a hostile environment. People are still, you know, I said the other day at Whole Foods, I said, now would be a good time. Wait, wait a second. Now would be a good time. No. Now would be a good time, don't you think, to turn to the Lord? And he goes, yeah, or something. Oh, yeah. No, no, this is just a slap on the wrist, too. People are still, they're still hard-hearted. Don't you think it's time to turn to the Lord? Yeah, or something, anything, a tree, just not the one who made the tree. You see, we need to be the dove. We need to keep cooing. We need to be the sheep and keep buying. I don't know where this is going. I'm just keep talking because I miss you guys and I want to hang out with you. You haven't thrown me out of your living rooms yet or wherever you're watching this. So remember, be kind and gentle in a hostile world. Be like Jesus and you'll watch him manifest his power for his goodwill to be done in their hearts and lives. Let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you for these wonderful truths that set our hearts free. They just remind us, God, of our calling what's important in this world, even today. So help us take these truths to heart, put them into practice, make us more effective and productive in a hostile Wolfville uh, environment, God, where we just have to watch ourselves and keep our hearts right before you. We want to commit ourselves to your care. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.